BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, October 31st, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. This episode is brought to you by MailRoot. Viruses and email are scary, and spam is worse than the undead. Some email companies even sell their services to you for cheap, so they can mine your email for marketing triggers. So use MailRoot, the leading cloud service for email protection since 1997. Visit mailroot.net slash mines for a free trial and 10% off the lifetime of your account. Today's episode is also sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your website. On the show this week, we have an interview with Adam Savage, who is the host of the very popular Discovery Channel series Mythbusters, which we taped in front of a live audience as part of the Bay Area Science Festival just a few days ago. Adam Savage is an American industrial design and special effects designer, fabricator, actor, educator, and television personality. Also on the show, I talked about science in the news with Ben Lilly, who's the co-creator and founder of The Story Collider, a podcast that includes stories about how science has changed people's lives. Ben is a high-energy particle physicist, but he left science to tell stories. So first, you'll hear me talk to Ben, and then we'll take a short break, and I'll be back with my interview with Adam Savage. And tonight, joining me as a guest host is Ben Lilly. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hello. So, Ben, what's in the news this week? Oh, God. Uh, so I don't, I don't know how many people in the audience saw this about four hours ago. I see people covering their face. You know what's coming. For the people on the podcast, this is actually days old news, but um, an Antares rocket just launched, and it blew up on the launch pad. And this is one of the... Like, I, I, have, I have a lot of friends who are astronomers, and they were tweeting, like, one, one of my astronomer friends was like, I'm in the parking lot at Home Depot crying. And I don't mean to open the show with like the saddest thing in the world, and it's not. Let's be clear. Nobody died. There was no crew on this rocket. Uh, nobody was hurt. So that's good. Um, but this, in, and in fact, we forget. Like, we're so good at rockets and like space science at this point, we forget that like it's rocket science. And... Uh, <laughs> 
It's hard, and this, this these things happen. So um, we're recording just after this happened. Presumably, if you're if you're listening, you'll know more than we know now about what actually happened. But this is like, for like, I'm a physicist. Like, tragic stuff doesn't happen in physics. It doesn't happen in astronomy, but occasionally it does. And you're just like, oh, I feel for the people who are launching satellites. It was a supply mission to the ISS. The the, the astronauts will be fine. There's other ways of doing this, but. Um, is one of these heartbreaking things. You're like, this happens. It's still hard to get to space. We are living in the future, but like, not quite. And that's that can be hard. And the video of it is really dramatic. If you haven't yeah. seen it, definitely go and check it out. It's really dramatic. The thing totally blows up. Um, and uh, and that's really appropriate for our show tonight because the second part of it is Adam Savage, who also blows stuff up. Um, so, you know, in some way it's all, it's all coming together. Oh my, so much. I, sorry, Adam is sitting here looking at us. Adam, I fell in love when you blew up the cement truck as it did everybody else in the world. It's a thing. Yeah. Uh, so more on that a little bit later. Uh, but first I wanted to talk about a study too that I think has gotten a little bit of press and I think it's only going to get more press and oh I think it's not always going to get the right type of press. Oh, this is fun. Um, this is a study out of Columbia in which a, uh, a bunch of neurologists gave a cocoa, or flavanols, to people who are between the ages of 50 and 69, 37 so, to be exact. cocoa like chocolate. Cocoa, well, not like chocolate. <laughs> See, that's, that's the problem, right? So yes, uh, it's similar, and there are flavanols in some chocolates, but um, the process of making a lot of chocolate bars actually gets rid of this compound. Or, uh, but in any case, the point of the study was that they found that in these 37 individuals, it was uh, randomly placebo-controlled, you know, etc., uh, they found a significant difference in the activation and the function of a part of the brain called the dentate gyrus, which is smack in the middle of the hippocampus, which if anyone has listened to this show long enough, they'll know it's my favorite brain region. I'm sorry. The dentate gyrus sounds like a part of your brain that controls your teeth. <laughs> it does, it, it, but it does not control your teeth. It's, okay. it's part of the hippocampus, uh, and the hippocampus really is responsible for turning information that you're getting now into long-term memory. So it's really important. Um, it's not the part of the hippocampus, or the medial temporal lobe, I should say, that is involved in Alzheimer's disease, but as you get older, your dentate gyrus does tend to function less well. Mm. Uh, so the idea here was, can we eat something? Thing that will improve the function of this brain region that tends to decline with age. And it turns out that the study found a significant result. Um, now, people had to consume a lot of flavanols <laughs> to like, get this result. So it was something like, you know, I heard one of the, um, the anchor authors, Scott Small, say that it was like eating 25 candy bars a day. So <laughs> that's not healthy. <laughs> no, sorry, yay. No. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so there is... and. You know, there's sort of some, some other issues. But what's really cool um, is that they did find an effect. They did use a really great high-res imaging technique to look at the dentate gyrus. They developed a really cool task to see the dentate gyrus function, and they found it, and it's published in Nature Neuroscience. So I, I was reading about this. They, they can do a full 3D reconstruction of the brain instead of... Usually they do slices, right? So you see one layer after another? Yeah, so that's always the problem. The problem with imaging this part of the brain is that it's really close to your ear canals, which kind of blow out the signal because, you know, we're all, we're all talking about differences in oxygen levels and there's oxygen in air. And so anyway, this that's like the physics of this problem. Um, so they've found a way to get really detailed imaging of this particular region um, without having to deal with some of these physical problems that other scientists have been plagued with. That's 
sorry, if I understood you correctly, your ears get in the way of your brain a lot of the time. Brain imaging. Okay. Brain imaging, yes. You're, I know my ears get in the way of my brain all the time. Yeah, yeah. The sinuses are not a neuroscientist's best friend. We don't like them. They blow out the signal. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So that's, that's the study. So what are you going to see are a lot of people peddling flavanols and flavanol compounds and cocoa and saying, you know, eat cocoa. It will make you less stupid as you get older. So chocolate um, isn't a miracle drug? Is it's that not, no. um, unfortunately. It might be, but not in its very highly processed form. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is, okay, this is one of these things about science, right? If I, if I read this, the articles correctly, this study was sponsored by the Mars Corporation. There is that. Yeah. Okay, just let's, you know, these things happen in science, too. We get money wherever we can. (laughs) So, Ben, what else is going on? I am fascinated... Okay, this is going to sound nerdy to those who understand it and incomprehensible to those who don't. I am fascinated by IRBs. Um, So, these are the Institutional Review Boards that, like, approve studies of humans. And this this is an amazing... like. Read up on the history of these things is amazing. Started with the Stanford Prison Experiment and these experiments that shocked people, and they're like, "You should totally like not do that to people." Literally um, shocked them. Literally not, shocked you know. them. Yeah, um, not just with like photos of like surprised puppies or something. But um, so what happened this week is a bunch of political scientists did this uh, study. I'm putting it in air quotes for the podcast listeners, uh, where they emailed no emailed sorry they mailed physical mailed. Uh, flyers about the political race in Montana with information about the political leanings of the candidates embossed with the seal of Montana and then in small print saying this was for a scientific study. And obviously they're getting a tremendous amount of shit for this, as they should. And what's fascinating to me is, A, like why the researchers thought this was a good idea, how it got past an institutional review board that's supposed to keep people from doing things that might influence elections. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, when, when something goes wrong, and, and we don't know yet, again, this is, we're recording early, stuff will come out in the weeks to follow about what exactly happened, but um, a bunch of researchers thought it was a good idea to send out flyers that might have influenced the election in Montana. And you can sort of trace their thinking. Like, as political scientists, you want to know. Like, does a, they, and they, they claimed, and I believe them, that it wasn't politically leaning. They, they had the equivalent information on both sides. But, and so you want to know, like, what kinds of information does influence how people vote? And that, that's a really interesting question. But you have to do it in a way where you're not, like, impersonating the Board of Elections in the state of Montana. Like, how, how did that happen? And I'm, I'm fascinated to see, like, what went wrong in the process. Yeah, it's one way of getting around the participant pool problem. <laughs> you <laughs> right, have to recruit exactly. participants. Just send it just to all send, random people. Yes, exactly. And, and that's just part of it, is they sent the flyers to certain precincts and not to others. And that's how they were going to measure it. It's like... Well, you need random control. Exactly. Right? <laughs> no, good, good science. Just like what? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so I look forward to hearing the outcome of uh, that particular storm. Yes. <laughs> Several storms. So without further ado, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Adam Savage. <laughs> Viruses in email are scary, and it is, after all, Halloween. So did you know that there are actual things called zombies in email? And spam is even worse than the undead. But more terrifying than viruses and spam, a lot of email companies sell their services to you for cheap so they can mine your email for marketing triggers. If that doesn't keep you up at night, it probably should. So 
Use MailRoot. MailRoot is the leading cloud service for email protection, and they've been protecting email since 1997. With MailRoot, there's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mail server and mailbox. It's easy to use with a reliable uptime of five nines. That is 99.999%. With MailRoot, you control your own filter settings and more per domain or per user. MailRoot built their interface and tools with admins and developers in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. MailRoot supports one-click migration from another service and does pretty much everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. To remove spam and zombies from your life for good, go to MailRoot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. That's MailRoot.net slash M-I-N-D-S. This episode is also sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website portfolio and online store. What's so great about Squarespace? It's simple, super easy, but still has beautiful design options. Now, if you've ever wanted to make a website but felt overwhelmed with figuring out how to design it and program it, etc., Squarespace is perfect for you. You can literally drag and drop content onto your new website. Plus, there's 24-7 chat and email support, and every site comes with an online store. Plans start at just 8 bucks a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. Show your support for Inquiring Minds and start building your website today. So I'd like to welcome uh, Mr. Adam Savage to the stage, please. Yeah, this seems pretty good. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Great. Mine keeps um, it's a little bit anemic. It keeps falling. <laughs> um, a shout out to the grilled cheese sandwiches. <laughs> Amazing. Go for the spicy. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, good to know. Yeah, I haven't had my grilled cheese. Yeah, yet. yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I was worried I'd like drop it on my white shirt, and that would be probably. Yeah. <laughs> Murphy's law. <laughs> all right. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Adam Savage. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time, so I'm glad we finally made it work. So you're a self-described maker, a sculptor, a doer of things, and this seems to be a renaissance right now in terms of people making stuff, taking things apart, working with their hands. Is this only San Francisco, or are you seeing it all around the world that people are getting interested again in terms of building things from scratch? Um, I, I think that it's, it feels global. I mean, of course, I'm a, I'm a terrible sample because people seek me out to tell me about the stuff that they're making. Um, but I, I've, and we've been really lucky that Mythbusters has come of age over the past 12 years, seemingly right alongside the whole maker movement. Uh, it wasn't long after we started Mythbusters, I think, that O'Reilly Media put out Make Magazine and that begat the Maker Fair uh, and on and on and on, this cascade. Uh, and I've, I personally think that one of the things that has really led to it has been the, the global hacking of electronics. Um, and I like to liken it to what I see as the an earlier maker community in uh, America, which is post-war car culture. In the 50s, you had people with extra income, and cars stopped becoming black boxes that you bought, and people started modding them and realizing that this was a system you could improve. Uh, and 
I grew up thinking of electronics as one of those things that if it broke, you needed to replace it. You weren't going to go in and re-solder stuff onto the board. Uh, but now you've got you know eight-year-old girls who are a- experts at Arduino programming and 3D printers in every school. And I think that that stuff, once you understand that that is possible, it just opens up a whole new world for anyone that's interested in modding what's around them. And I think that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like I, I totally agree with you that this is something that seems to be building and it seems really interesting, but it also feels to me as though it's becoming more and more difficult because all of the electronics that we have, you know, it's not like people are putting things together back with screws. They're gluing things onto each yeah. other, right? Yeah. And, you know, iPhones are built to last two years and then go kaput. Um, so it feels as though there's this kind of disposability in terms of electronics and then even the cars have computer chips in them that even the car mechanic can't understand anymore. Yeah. So where do you see that trend going? It's fascinating. It, it took me a while to realize that I, I have a particular penchant for paying attention to copyright law. Um, and I also am a bit of a legal geek. And the area in which I'm most fascinated is privacy. And they completely overlap uh, on a whole bunch of fronts. And there is a battle for leading, but led by American corporations, but it's pretty global, to change the rules of ownership effectively. Um, you know, everyone's complaining about corporations being people, but it's also patenting algorithms is inherently risky behavior. And when you start to do it, you start to end up in this zone where companies are going to claim to own. All sorts of things. I work on a TV show where I have to argue with my producers to name a movie, to say a movie. Like, it's a fact that a movie exists called The Terminator. I am not doing anything except referring to this fact. Fuck everybody that I can't say this on television. This is my crew. Like, they know to sort of get quiet when I, have, when I, when I realize I have to not say something like that because I get very upset about it. Um, and, yeah, I, you know, it is... I'm an Apple guy through and through. I drank the Kool-Aid in 1995, but it, it unceasingly pisses me off that they're wanting to make the blackest of black boxes that you can't get inside. And you know, when I go check iFixit and see how impossible it is to fix the broken space bar on my laptop, um, that makes me mad. Look, I, I feel like there's going to at some point be a bounce back. You know, There's a, a great convention in one of William Gibson's books where he posits uh, – one of the things he posits in a future – and I can't remember which book it is. It's one of the post-Neuromancer trilogies. Um, but there's a group of computer makers in the southwest called the Sandbenders. And what they do is they hand make these silver and turquoise laptop cases that you put your own hard drive and screen and memory and everything else into. And I really think that we'll be at that point at some point in the future where – the box itself doesn't matter. It's what we put into it that matters. And maybe that will only be one facet of the culture, but I still think that that has a place. And, you know, it's interesting that Elon Musk recently has also promised to put the Tesla, the electronic car technology out there and be open sourced. You know, that seems to be a movement in that direction. Um, but, you know, what do you think about that? I, Elon Musk keeps on saying things in such the right way, I can only conclude that he's going to be a Marvel villain at some point. <laughs> 
It's like it's like if I wrote the sketch, if I wrote a script for my fantasy billionaire, what is? Oh, let's go to space. Yeah, that works. Let's build an, an electric car. Yeah, that works. Woohoo! Everything he does seems to be working, and it makes me suspicious. Yeah, and yet, yet he says he wants to give it away. So maybe I think that's, that's brilliant. The nefarious, you know. I'm I'm I, I'm always I've always been about open source, and I you know. It, this is a difficult time. We're we're dealing with some. We're dealing with the issue of privacy, not large issues, but the issue of what privacy will be. And either we're going to win or we're, or we're going to lose. And if we lose, and if we lose our ability to have privacy on the net, it's going to be twenty years before someone builds another net that's on top of that. And maybe it's Google balloons, or maybe it's some dark net, or maybe it's other ways of beaming information around. But people will do it. They they will find a way around what's already been built, and you know maybe maybe TCP/IP goes away because of that, and that would be a shame. But we have to have privacy. We have to be able to be private in our lives. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> Did with I start you. yelling there at some point? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, and I, it's interesting too how things really are. Even even our own data, everything's going to going into the cloud, into this kind of. It seems like access to everyone, um, but I see the trend that you're, you're talking about, and, and we do need to retain that privacy. Um, but I also wanted to sort of switch a little bit and talk about. Um, the other side, which is we also want to share this information, and that's yeah. something that you're really passionate about, of course, sharing science, teaching people, educating, and so forth. So where do you see the future of science communication going, um, especially now as things are changing, the way that people are consuming television is changing. Um, you know, People aren't just turning on a cable network yeah. and watching, right? The, models, so, the model is changing as we speak. Yeah, and, and you've made some changes to Mythbusters recently. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you see the future there. I I have no idea. I'm here to tell you I have no idea what's happening, and everybody is shitting bricks. The networks, the cable companies, I mean, everybody's freaking out about it because they don't know what the model is going to be. Um, But there are a few smart companies that are positioning themselves. Look, in the end, it's all about telling stories. You know, I, I, I first realized that I was a science communicator, and then I realized that what that means is I'm just telling stories and I'm trying to tell stories that have truth to them instead of that are great stories with a bunch of lies on top of them, which I'm also really good at telling. <laughs> um, and we're always we – are, we are addicted to stories. We need them. They're part of what we eat as humans. And they're, I've, I posit – I've been thinking about this for months now – that we invented language specifically to tell stories, not the other way around. That the chicken and the egg is that the story came first. You know, I killed this big thing with a sharpened stick and now I eat well. That story is the most fundamental story there is. And as we tell more elaborate stories, we understand more about the world. And that's, I mean, that's all science is, is rigorous storytelling, checkable mm-hmm. storytelling. Um, and I love, I love some of the thing. let's see. I mean, obviously, I've been on television for 12 years, but I'm also a deep fan of social media and Twitter, uh, the stuff we put on Tested.com, which has become effectively, you know, what's, what, what is Tested.com? We don't really know, except that it's an incubator for what's interesting to Jamie, me, Will Smith, and Norman Chan. And we're having a great time trying out everything that we're interested in. So we're doing a new segment tomorrow where uh, a, a friend of mine who's an actor uh, – is coming to my shop to build stuff with me. And we're going to see what that's like. I have no mm-hmm. idea what that might be like. 
Uh, and maybe that's a type of storytelling that will do in the future. I don't know. Um, the fact is nobody knows the answers to what's going to be the format in which we're going to consume stories from each other. But it's going to look a lot more like the web than it does like television. That's for sure. And that's something that you've been extremely successful at is making things that normally people just take as either a myth or a fact or whatever and telling a great story behind it and, and bringing us along on the journey. And that's kind of created you into a bit of a rock star now. You, you've got a national or international tour going on where yes. you, know, you sell out you know, big, big places. And so tell us a little bit about what it's like to go on tour. Well, it's, it's very different. Uh, you know, on, on a day-to-day basis, filming Mythbusters is, is pretty blue-collar. Um, there's only – we have a small crew of about 25 people in San Francisco. Uh, on the floor when we're building, it's maybe six of us. And it's very intimate. Most of us have been, most of our crew has been with us for at least six years, some of them eight, 10, 11 years. And, you know, we get dirty, we get cranky, we get injured, we go home and, you know, we're tired and we go to sleep. Uh, But a few years ago, we wrote this two hour variety show called the Behind the Myths Tour, and it has been evolving and morphing and changing. And we've now taken it to 120 cities around the world, uh, in the U.S. and Canada and Australia, with plans to take it elsewhere. Um, I started a 25-city tour in three weeks. 25 cities in 30 days. Yeah. But I'm on a bus. It's awesome. (laughs) It's really great. I've learned that the secret to touring is to get out of the bus. Right? Like the first time we went on tour, I didn't leave the bus for days at a time. And you can just calcify and you can kind of understand why... Bob Dylan's going crazy. Um, and this last time, this last fall, we, were, we did uh, 29 cities in 32 days. And I made sure to get out every single day to at least go to one thrift shop in every city I was in. I still didn't find anything. Um, and it, it's, it's really gratifying because walking out on that stage with an audience where it's probably about 30% children, um, about 30% people who grew up on our show, which is a phrase that makes me feel old, but I'm very happy about it. Um, and then there's a bunch of grizzled engineers who, you know, I ask a show of hands who's yelled at us at the television and about half the audience <laughs> goes up. Uh, and yeah, it is as close to feeling like a rock star as we'll ever get. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's. I think that's. It's something that's really amazing that you can fill in these halls um, with, with this kind of, you know, show that's about science and about what you're doing. And I'm just waiting for you to collaborate with the Book of Mormon guys for the Broadway musical. <laughs> just putting it out there. Totally, I'm there. First. I'm there. <laughs> um, so you were just in Australia. Tell us some of the stories that happened, or tell us one story well, of, of your tour. I've been. I've been working with Australia. Just Mythbusters is an Australian show. We're produced out of Sydney. Uh, I had no idea, really. Yeah. I don't, if you remember, there was a show called Beyond 2000, and it was a magazine-style show, magazine show on Discovery for a, more than a decade. And it built this production company called Beyond Productions, and they came up with the idea for Mythbusters in 2001 and hired Jamie and I to be the hosts. But we've never been there. So we finally <laughs> went to the mothership this last trip. Um, and... I've been working with Aussies for 12 years. I have some of my best friends. And actually, Mythbusters is in and of itself a deeply Australian show. It has an Australian sense of humor, that Anglo-Saxon thing about taking the piss out of everybody. That is right in our wheelhouse, and it has informed Mythbusters. But no Australian made it clear to me 
how beautiful Australia is. New Zealanders, they'll bend your ear all night long about how gorgeous New Zealand is, and it is. It's almost like they're showing off. It's like a model going, I don't know why everyone's so nice to me. (laughs) But Australia is also absolutely gorgeous. And we think, San Francisco, that we live in a water city. We live in a city close to the water, and it's like a joke compared to all the port cities in Australia. Picture picture a city that is... uh, the density on the shoreline of Sausalito, the size of San Francisco, but the distance across the water is never more than half a mile. So it's the whole city lives around the water. Oh, and did I mention you can swim in it most of the year and it's water clear, like crystal clear with like coral reefs everywhere. It's crazy gorgeous. So we did, my wife and I brought my kids to, we, uh, we, Got to see the Opera House, we, Sydney Harbor Bridge. We did the Coogee Walk, which is walking all the way from Bondi Beach down to Coogee Beach, which is like a wonderful afternoon. Um, over in Perth, we actually drove down the coastline to Cape Natural East and did a hike down there. Um, I did get to go to Weta Workshop in, in, in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, and spend the day geeking out with Peter Jackson and Richard Taylor. at we- Peter Jackson turns out to be a prop collector like me, a nutter, as he said. Um, and I, at one point I said, oh, yeah, I've, I've commissioned this uh, suit of armor from Excalibur. And he said, oh, I've got Lancelot's armor over in this room. <laughs> and then we literally went to a broom closet where he pulls on a thing of bleach and a door opens up into this cave full of props. <laughs> Only in Australia, yeah. I, I hope. <laughs> New Zealand. Oh, sorry, New Zealand. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Only in New Zealand, yeah. Um, so I think a lot of us want to know what happened to your three co-hosts yeah. um, and why did they get canned, and, and especially those of us who really looked up to Carrie Byron and who, you know, it's so rare to have I know. women in, you know, this field and especially shown as, you know, not only smart, but, you know, just, just also, you know, awesome. So what's going on? I'm having this great feeling right now because I've had so many dudes tell me how much they like Carrie and I'm so fucking sick of it. Because I know what they mean, and I don't want to... She's like my little sister. I love Carrie, uh, and I love all those guys. They're all dear friends of ours. As for, as for why they left, um, you know, Mythbusters is a show that's long in the tooth. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been around for 12 years. Uh, and unfortunately, I have to give this pat answer, which is the answer that I've got to give, which is the reasons why they left are between them and Discovery. Sure. Um, I... It's not up to me to talk about their contracts. And you yeah. wouldn't want me doing it about yours, so I'm not going to talk about my friends' contracts. Um, and I'm sad to see them go. Jamie and I were the, were the, were the loudest, the loudest, what do you call it? We were, the, we were the loudest about making sure that they stayed. We thought it was a bad idea. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's dumb, we thought, to mess with the form this late in the game. Um, but ultimately that decision was Discoveries and Cary Grant and Tories, and um, I really wish them the best. I know that they're going to do great. All mm-hmm. three of them have tremendous skills. Um, whether they work together or not, I really actually don't know, and I'm kind of curious to see how it turns mm-hmm. out because I think that they're going to do even more amazing things outside the Mythbusters format. Um, I know that they all have different opportunities being presented to them, and I really hope that I get to work with them in the future. So what else do you feel that you now, as you're in your rock star position of power, what can you do <laughs> as Adam Savage uh, to make sure that women are better represented in this you know, highly masculinized field? Oh, man. Yeah. 
Shit's tough for girls. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. As a man, you know, I'm watching this whole Gamergate thing go down. and Yeah, well, I mean, also the internet, right? Yeah. And like, you know, walking on the streets in New York. And yes! Stuff. Did yeah. you see that? Did oh, the, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I've been that. You know, like every, that's the, that's the crazy thing is that, you know, I know very few women that haven't been harassed in some way or another. And then I get, like, I tweeted about it. I tweeted about this at some point a few months ago. Hey, if you catcall to a girl in the street, that's not a compliment. You're just an asshole. <laughs> and, right, so of course it's like classic Twitter. And I'm stupid. I'm reading the tweets. It's <laughs> like, right on, right on, right on, right on, right on, right on. And then there's this, like, has to be a dude troll who's like his profile is a most proud mother of three kids yeah, right. who like tweets like 40 tweets in three hours about how it's only ever a compliment and only ever, ever anyone who doesn't take it as a compliment uh, clear they literally say this anyone who doesn't take it as a compliment is a liberal commie fag <laughs> like are you kidding really like this is your playbook this is like a 20 year old playbook um I, I don't know. You know, Jamie and I, the problem I have is that I'm a white dude. Um, and I recognize that, you know, my privilege makes it impossible for me to, to say there should be more women in science without sounding like I'm proclaiming from on high. Uh, and so I, I take that position seriously. Uh, and I genuinely, you know, I have ideas. Like, I, you know, I bring, I bring women into the things that I'm doing because they absolutely are, are part and parcel of all of the storytelling and the science and the scientific discovery that, that we do. Um, and little girls need more role models in critical thinking, absolutely. Um, but I also recognize that I, that's not me. You're not <laughs> I, a little girl? I, I, no, I'm, but <laughs> I, I could be a little girl's role model, but I'm not going to be her ideal role model. She needs a woman to do that. And, I, you know, I, I believe that we need, we need to find that balance. Um, I guess it's a long way of saying I'm not really sure. I'm always looking. I'm always looking at, at, at ways to do that. I'm trying to raise two 15-year-old boys to understand that. You know, at one point, they had some app, some app that appends pictures with um, phrases, right? Turns a picture into a meme, and the memes are all sexual, right? These were, they were 13 at the time. How did I find out about this? Because of Apple's picture sharing. Oh, the privacy So we got problem. Apple TV, <laughs> and all of a sudden, this picture comes up on all the televisions in the house, and my wife and I are like, what is that? <laughs> Oh my God, we were so mad. And we, we, we sat them down. I mean, my boys are really good at receiving lectures because they get them a lot. <laughs> uh, but one of the things we said was, you know, you grow up in school learning that there are all of these compromised populations, gay people, people of color, you know, every, you know, every stripe is, it can be a compromised population. But you're not learning that women are a compromised population. And we're here to tell you that they are. And one of my sons said, right, but the girl in this picture thought that was funny. And my wife said, I can tell you from being that girl that she told you that that was funny. And I can tell you that even she doesn't know that she was lying, but she was. And you need to know that even if she doesn't. That's what we're trying to do. Well, you're a pretty good role model. Well... <laughs>
Yeah. So I want to end on that note. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Wow. I thought there was going to be more. <laughs> no. Thanks for being on Inquiring Minds, Thank Adam Savage. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks, guys. I want to thank Kishore Hari and the other organizers of the Bay Area Science Festival, as well as everyone else that was involved in our live taping, and of course, our audience, who were great. It was super fun, and I'm looking forward to doing it again very soon. That's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, today's episode was sponsored by MailRoot, the leading cloud service for email protection. To learn more and get started, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off the lifetime of your account. And it was also sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website portfolio and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your website. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.